This is the Three Towns podcast. It was first published in late 2020 for the first anniversary of the Black Summer Fires. It was exhausting. Every time the phone pinged, um, every conversation that you had with somebody, just the waiting. You know, we'd known it was coming for months, so November it started. Three months of waiting for this thing to arrive. This is episode two of Three Towns. We're still in and around Buchan in the hills of East Gippsland. I'm Matthew Abud. Last episode, we heard how Buchan used the time it had to prepare for the Black Summer fires, and they arrived on Monday, December 30. I still wasn't convinced that Buchan was going to be impacted, but we were definitely watching, keeping up to date with the app. Um, we were talking to friends, so there would be phone calls, you know, this is where we know the fire is, this is the activity. That's local resident Kirsty Pierce. I ended up going up to the pub to help um, Marg and Bricky with doing the meals for the CFA crew. So I popped up there and one other friend had popped in to get some beer and she said, oh, we've heard Buckin's going to definitely get impacted. And I said to Marg, OK, I need to go. Um, I'll come back later. Didn't go back later, obviously. Um, so we just came home, got the fire cart, started watering down the house, watering down sections where we knew the direction of the fire was coming from, underneath the house. Obviously renovating the house has got lots of areas fire could get in. So then the CFA crew came through and they said, what are, you, what are your plans? We said, we're staying. And they told us that when the fire came through the Bucking Caves Reserve, it would collapse on our property. So we would be showered with embers. And I went, OK, so we'll be dealing with grass fires. Kirsty wasn't the only one who at first found it difficult to believe that the area would be hit so hard. Melville Woodgate's a local farmer who's been living a short drive outside Buchan for almost 60 years, since her early 20s. This fire, we, we've had fires that have frightened us before, yeah. I've packed up everything that I thought was valuable in this house. How long ago? I've forgotten the years, but, you know, 25 years ago or something. But this time we thought, oh, no. It won't happen, you know. Um, the day before, the, the, we knew the fire was coming for sure for weeks. And this particular day before the, the, the Big Bang, my family said to me, you're not staying here, you're going to stay in Buchan with our friend, um, half a relation, but a friend. Pack what you want the night before. They said, put what you want in the car um, and pack it all in and whatever. And I said, yes, but I don't know. I don't know what I should... I've got what I think, and, and what, you're not going to take... No, it's, it's not going to... It won't burn, you know. You're not, you know, you never know, you never know. But I think I've been through two or three times of it, and I think, oh, well, it, can't, it can't happen, you know. With all the modern helicopters and God knows what around, it won't burn everything. So about one o'clock we got into the car and we got every, what I thought was necessary and took off. And then I, no, that was it. I wasn't to come back here. And I knew by the smoke and everything around that it was, you know, it was going to be a bit big. So I um, sat on the veranda with my friend about four o'clock and we had our cups of tea and watched things and heard radios and God knows what. And, and then by uh, five o'clock we knew all hell might break loose. And uh, so we started to have a couple of drinks, a little drink of sherry or something. Buchan had prepared well, but this fire was like nothing the town had faced before, and there were many terrifying moments. 
Last episode, we heard from local CFA member Kate Hodge. She says that even though this fire would challenge the town like never before, it could have been far worse. We've never had a fire actually burn into town in in you know since settlement, so um, it was the first event of its type that's gotten here. All of the plans were followed very in a very structured way, and as a result of that good preparation. Um, mightn't seem like it but I think we did really well to reduce the losses to what we did. We got ember attack and we got the fire fairly early in the afternoon or you know sort of four or five o'clock which meant um, that it was really hot weather, we had high winds and there was a lot of conditions to try and deal with um, and the fire spread very quickly once it hit the um, the open country which, which created the need to be very um, very focused and and careful around how we we went about trying to fight the fire where we could and how we could. Again and again, local knowledge of the houses and properties around the area and the people who lived in them was a big factor in the decisions Kate and others needed to make. The first spot fire that dropped into the valley um, just north of here, I was on top of the hill at a high point keeping an eye out and we were directly above where the spot fire started. By the time we got down there, there were five other spot fires in the surrounding space. Um, we were pretty keen to go to this one though because it was on a piece of property where we knew there was an elderly lady with her elderly daughter um, and that they didn't maybe have the same level of um, capacity to uh, protect themselves as in other spaces. So um, a DELP vehicle and our truck went to that and we were able to um, put out the running edge that was going towards her house and pretty much see the fire off into the into the river catchment. Um, and by the time we'd done that, there were several very big spot fires and we were called back into town. Um, so uh, I was given a piece sort of on the uh, northeast side of town where the primary school and the rec reserve where the people were sheltering was. So I had a role of um, patrolling in that space along with the DELP um, team that were up in that space and um, and we, we did really well. I think we probably had the better side of the fire to be fighting because it was creeping down the hill slowly on that side whereas over on this side of town where it was coming in it was being pushed really hard coming out of the, the um, the forest with a lot of force behind it and it was just rolling in balls of fire in behind town here. Like several others, Kate also emphasises how, when the pressure was on, community connections and professional trust were key to making all the preparation work. A lot of people that are in the CFA and, and also probably maybe five or six of the DELT people are local. Um, so there was um, definitely a local representation as well as our contractors that were here who were working for DELP, which are the people that were the earth moving equipment and the, um, you know, the, the dozers, excavators, etc. Most of them have local connections. So in a way it was like having a big family with maybe I think we had three strike teams here that came out of Melbourne that joined our family for the, for the um, actual event. If we hadn't had um, such capable 
um, leaders within those strike teams who obviously had that level of professional trust not only for their own team but could see how well set up we were, how organised we were. They wouldn't have worked in the way that they did and, and done the good work that they did which would have, which allowed us to preserve as much of the, you know, the um, assets as we did around the space. We had a, a truck driver who was from a group um, that were down towards um, the Bass Coast and, um, and he said, look, I think I can get my truck in behind these, these houses um, and it was a bigger truck which had more capacity to carry water and um, he, once he got his truck in there, everybody else followed in their trucks but it was the strike team leader who had the confidence in him to say, if you think you can do it, then go ahead, you know. I'm, I'm confident, you know, to be safe because, you know, the request was made reasonably and the, um, the leadership was trusting in the capacity of their staff and able to say, yep, if you can do that safely, then you do that. And that probably meant we saved our motel and we saved quite a few of the assets on that um, top end of the main street. The fight was on in the town and all around the district. Here's Kirsty Pierce again. I have a brother in Melbourne that's been through fire. He got caught in a fire once, so he was talking to me throughout the night, just saying, this is what you'll see, this is what you'll hear. But nothing can prepare you for the noise and the sight of it. It was, it was just like a beast as it came over the top of, of the ridgeline from the caves. It was churning like, yeah, churning like a dragon. I don't know how else to describe it. It was horrifying. At that point I felt really small, that was probably one of the times I went, I'm not feeling really comfortable with this. But Paul reassured me once it hit the top of the hill it was going to slow down and it did. Um, it also didn't collapse on us so we weren't showered with embers. Um, but lots of fire, we could everywhere we looked around from the school right around through the back of the street um, and the top of the hill was just fire. and. Then when the wind direction changed, we ended up with a grass fire coming across from the south. So that was very smoky. And I remember running up the driveway. Paul was already up there with the cart watering down the driveway and trying to just wet the grass along our perimeter. And I was running up the driveway and the, the smoke was that thick that I just couldn't breathe. And every part of me wanted to turn around and run the other way. But I knew he was up there. I had to get up there. And once I was up there, I don't know if it was the oxygen in the water, but I actually started to, yes, I can breathe now, I can, I'm going to be okay, but yeah. Um, watching the couple of properties across the road really burning was difficult because we could have looked at it and go, could we go up and help, but then they're not there, we can't leave our property. So there's this real catch-22 of a responsibility to people in your town versus what you've got to do to keep yourself safe. So that was really heartbreaking, just sitting there and watching those places go up. And I guess there is that survivor's guilt of our place is safe but you've lost your homes and it's heartbreaking. You do what you've got to do. At the time I was just being very practical and very pragmatic but afterwards you look back and go, that was pretty big. Meantime in Buchan East, Donald Graham and his wife Bron were also waiting. Although they'd only moved to their bush block a couple of years earlier, they'd already had one fire scare just the season before. They got themselves as prepared as they possibly could. So we decided um, to put in a couple of fire bunkers because of the nature of our block and where the house was, uh, we would probably prefer to stay um, and defend the house. 
and the best way to do that was to put in a bunker and so that we have a, a, a place to retreat to if, if the uh, situation was worse or different to what we might have anticipated. Um, we watched it in the paddocks probably seven or eight o'clock in the evening and um, at that time I thought we were going to be right because the fire um, in the paddocks was only moving very slowly in a big circle basically and I thought the wind would would had changed um, slightly I thought we were right but anyway it came down the Tower Range Road which was all state forest um, and hit the back of our property about 11 o'clock uh, we decided because the fire was on us the air was just raining down with embers and the wind the wind might have been hard to know 70 kilometers an hour at this point um, I know the embers were going horizontally pretty much we decided that we would get into the bunkers um, there's a peep hole in the bunker where you can which was pointed at the house we could see the house in court uh, I waited five minutes um, got out probably when I shouldn't have done, and went down and endeavoured to put it out, but it was the, the fire was in the roof. I went back to the bunker for 10 or 15 minutes. Um, I was with my wife at the time, of course, and Bron, and, she, and she, um, we were in it together. I then, when on, on the bunker door, there's a, a, a thermometer which gives you a reading of the outside air temperature, um, and they indicate that you shouldn't go out there until it gets down to 50 degrees. Um, I think when I went out the first time, it might be more than that. But I, I don't remember. Anyway, this is the second time I waited until it was down to 50 degrees. Um, and I went out, left my wife there, up to the shed, which is situated um, oh, about 50 metres from the bunker, uphill. I went up there. I found that there was a vehicle on a light, and I had a 800 litres um, fire unit on a vehicle up there, so I, I put the vehicle, I put the the burning vehicle out. We rooted around at with the shed. I had two other small outbreaks in it in the structure, which I was able to deal with probably for three hours, um, and just to make sure it was completely out. At this time, I mean, the fire front had passed. Um, the whole valley was filled with smoke and still very hot. The trees. It was still dark, of course. The trees were all lit up like um, Christmas trees with just the burning embers, which were the, the limbs, uh, the ends of the limbs and the leaves still glowing in the dark. It was very pretty if nothing else was going on. And after we were sure that we'd dealt with the fire in the shed, um, we got into the vehicle and I started up, just turned the air conditioner on more because it was cooler and we sat there for three hours um, and... All this time, about every, th I don't know, two or three or four minutes, you'd hear a tree crashing down in the bush where, you know, the fire had got into the base of the tree and it was partly hollow, you would have burnt it out and then just... So it was just all night, you could hear these trees crashing. Anyway, so that was the long and the short of it all. We waited till, no, I think about three o'clock in the, in the morning we sent a text to the kids to tell them that we were fine, um, but the house had gone. From the veranda, Melva Woodgate watched as the fire hit the Buckin Township. 
while her family defended the home back on the farm. Um, it started to come up around behind us and, uh, and Lou said to me, Melva, Melva, get the hose, get the hose. And um, we went around with the hose around the back. And by this stage, it's coming around the back of her place. Next thing we could see, the old fella next door who's 80 on and it's starting to come down the side of his. And we thought, well, this is all going to go here. But thank God the fire brigade did turn up in three trucks and they saved us, saved her and us from there. But it, oh God, it was horrifying. It was horrifying and everything would have gone. Anyway, the family were out here. I knew they were here and that was it. And uh, I felt good about that, really good. And I felt safe about it. I felt that it wouldn't, they would save it too. They had um, Toyotas with spray units on the back full of water. So they had three of them and seven, five of my family and two outsiders fighting it. And uh, they rang me, or we've saved the house. Well, we, we went on like lunatics in Buck and thinking, what a blessing that was. But I've never been through a fire like it, ever, ever. It was just unbelievable. It was frightening, it was horrific, it was just... The whole town looked like it was going up where we were sitting. It just like everything. The house that went in Buchan, it was, it, was, it was crazy, it was scary as... Usually, a fire would diminish in the cooler, more humid night air and give people a bit of a break. But this time, it wasn't until around 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning that there was any kind of lull. They said, you get to bed. You go to bed, Melba. I said, you're joking. There's no way I can go. Oh, no, I was tired and exhausted from anxiety. I said, I can't go to bed. I'll go and get into my car, which was a comfortable car, put the seat back and just stay there. But the next morning, oh my God, everything was burnt. It was just, yeah, I wasn't allowed to come out here. I don't think I came out here for three days because there was so much burnt stuff around the place and no, everything, yeah. So it was dreadful, dreadful because we're in a view. But the smoke and the colour. Even after that night, fighting the fires was far from over. But it's not too much to say that the community's steps towards recovery started pretty much straight away. Everyone knew where they would be headed next, the Recreation Reserve Building and the Football Oval. I think someone went around to tell us that all all the fee, go to the rec, we knew the rec round was the recreation to, for everyone to go to. And then from that morning on, we knew we'd be having all our, everything down there, they got generators and everything to get things going. So we had breakfast, dinner and tea there every day for four weeks or more. Yeah, it was just unbelievable, like refugees, really. Kirsty Pierce also headed down the next morning. So when the fire was over, everybody went down to the wreck because that's where we go as a community. That's where we've always gone. Um, you know, it's a place to gather for all sorts of things, funerals, weddings, parties. So the fire is an obvious one. So the rec reserve became a quasi, you know, evacuation centre because everybody went there. Donald and Bron Graham had to come from their bush block first. A neighbour who owns the town's motel told them to pitch up there and grab some rest. At this stage, I, I had burnt my eyes um, during the evening. Um, more probably from smoke than heat, I don't know. So I could barely see, but um, so I got my wife to drive the first car and I followed her taillights pretty much. We went up to the motel, um, we couldn't raise anybody there, so we just went to the first room, we had an open door, um, um, went in, there was no power, 
at this stage because all are bucking no power. Um, we were filthy. We were, we were black from head to toe. Um, all I wanted to do was lie down, but I wanted to have a shower first. And, and so um, we tested the water, and fortunately it was electric hot water, but there must have been hot from the previous day. So there was enough water for us to have two showers. Um, we got clean and then went to bed, uh, and which for which we're really grateful. I mean, that was you couldn't have asked for anything better. We just needed a bed and to get clean. The next morning we went down to the... Uh, the rec hall, where, which was now the gathering point, um, um, all sorts of people there. I mean, there was the locals and there was um, ambulance people there, heaps of fireys. Uh, and uh, they looked after us really well. I mean, it, it, was, it was brilliant. That's the next part of the story, how the community came together in those first days afterwards and some of the things that made that work on the next episode of the Three Towns podcast. This show was first produced and published in late 2020 for the first anniversary of the Black Summer Fires. I'm Matthew Abud. Thanks to Spoonbill for the theme music. You can find a link to his work on the episode website. And thanks to Daniel Bowden and to Steve Adam for sound design and engineering support. (laughs) 